so today, though, we need to finish up uh, our Advent series until we get to tonight where we talk about the Incarnation. We're going to start by talking about uh, this guy. This is a guy named Francis of Assisi, St. Francis of Assisi. You may be familiar uh, with St. Francis. And so uh, a little after the year 1200, I believe it was the year 1223, uh, St. Francis goes, he's from Italy, he goes to the Holy Land, to Israel, uh, and he comes back. And he comes back during the Christmas season, uh, and he, and I know this is going to be a real stretch for us to understand, he is uh, disappointed that his culture in Italy in 1223 was more concerned with giving and getting gifts than about celebrating uh, the birth of Jesus. I know that's a stretch. Just try to put yourself uh, in his shoes. And so Assisi comes back to Italy, uh, and he's, he wants to do something about this to kind of refocus the attention of the season uh, back to the birth of Jesus. And so what he does is he gets a bunch of his friends together, uh, and he goes into a cave, and he has them dress up <laughs> like the characters from uh, the story of Jesus' birth. And this is the first, uh, the grandfather of what we now have as our Advent scenes, or our nativity sets, right? The first one was a live nativity set. It had the blessing of the Pope, and it was people dressed up reenacting uh, the birth of Jesus as an attempt to kind of bring focus back. And so now, uh, of course, we have Advent sets. Who has an Advent set in their house or a nativity set in their house, right? We have different ones. There's all different kinds of uh, nativity scenes, right? There's the real fancy ones that um, Lincoln doesn't get to touch that one, right? That one's made out of crystal. We got these real fancy ones, and then we can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, right? <laughs> we can have uh, the little pegs, uh, these cute little guys. And so we have all these different types of Advent sets. Here's one. Uh, this is the one from church. We got a cow with no ears or a sheep or whatever this is with no ears. Kind of a hodgepodge of different things here. Um, and then, but of course, what is Christmas without a Lego nativity scene, right? So we got all these different ones, ways that we can like look at and remember the different events in the birth of Jesus. This was the one that I had in my house growing up. And I thought it was unique, but I googled wooden nativity set, and like 30 pictures of this exact same one showed up. So apparently this was not uh, as, as unique as I thought. I thought my dad whittled it. Um, <laughs> turns out not to be true. Um, but, but we have had this nativity set. I remember playing with it um, as a kid, right? And you'd always, for some reason, kids love uh, playing with these things. I was really surprised that none of the kids uh, started moving these things around. I saw, thought Easton was going to go for this angel here. Uh, but for some reason, as kids, we like to like, move these things around, and like, they're kind of like little action figures. I remember as a kid, I could never um, remember which one was Joseph and which one was the shepherd, right? That seems like the case in like, almost all nativity scenes. Uh, Joseph and the shepherd are like the same guy. And I think that kind of um, maybe plays into a little bit of the role that many of us uh, assign to Joseph in the Christmas story, right? Uh, we all know Mary because she's, you know, has the beautiful song and she's got like chapters about her story in the book of Luke. We know the shepherds because they have this great event. Of course, the Magi, they got crowns and they got uh, presents and all that stuff. But Joseph is kind of like, the guy that's just kind of there, right? Uh, so this is, this is one of my favorites. So here's a great little one of Mary and Joseph. Check out Joseph. <laughs> that's the face of a guy who's wondering what the score of the Lions game is right now, right? <laughs> He's like, oh, good, a baby. I'm, I'm excited about this. 
but this is, I, I think it's telling of the, the amount of attention or the role that we give to Joseph in the Christmas story, right? He's kind of like this forgotten man. He's kind of on the, the, the outside. He's just kind of looking there real nice and quiet and not really doing anything, and we don't really talk about him. Um, but I think that Joseph uh, plays a really, really important role in us understanding uh, this entire story and this entire narrative. And so we want to talk about Joseph a little bit today as we uh, continue to move through, uh, through the Advent story. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Uh, God, as we now uh, go into your scriptures and we reflect on uh, the Advent story and the story of the birth of your son, we just pray that you give us eyes to see uh, what we can learn from these characters and maybe some things that we often overlook uh, we know that there is so much that can change our lives in these scriptures, and we pray that as we study them together this morning, uh, that you enable that to happen. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so I think um, besides the fact that uh, Joseph is kind of just a bummer-looking guy in all of the pictures, I think the reason that Joseph kind of gets relegated uh, in the Christmas story is because we really don't know a whole lot about him, right? The Bible is pretty quiet on who Joseph is. Even during the life and ministry of Jesus, we see Mary, we see Jesus' brothers, but except for this little tiny cameo uh, when Jesus is 12 years old and his parents leave him at the temple, we don't see Joseph at all in the rest of the Gospels. He basically disappears. And so besides the few little verses that we have in Matthew that talk about him, we don't really know anything about Joseph. But there's a few things that that we do know. Uh, we know that Joseph is from the line of David. David, of course, uh, was the famous king of Israel. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the prophecies of Israel foretold that the Messiah, the one who would redeem and save David, would come, or save Israel, would come through the line of David. And so this was a cool thing uh, to be able to be from the line of David. It's kind of like being in the family of a former president, right? Back row crew. Uh, we, got, we got some Fords in here. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it was a, a famous thing, but, but that's all we, really one of the only things we know about him. We also know that he was a carpenter. Um, he had a very normal uh, mid-to-low-class job. It was a, just a normal working man. Uh, he, didn't, he wasn't an elite. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't anything kind of in the upper crust of society, but he just did work. He was kind of a man of the people. Uh, but we also know, and I think this is really important, uh, that Joseph was a righteous man. Uh, We'll get into the text in just a second here, Um, but in pretty much all of the translations, except for the most recent version of the NIV, uh, when we read about David, or when we read about Joseph here, uh, he is called a righteous man because Joseph was a righteous man. And so what does that mean when we say Joseph was a righteous man? Um, This word Righteous or righteousness, I think, has very different meanings depending uh, on which side of really the cross uh, we're looking at it. Uh, And so, uh, for most of us Christians who kind of grew up with a Christian Pauline theology, we think of verses like this in Romans five. Paul says, "For just as through the just as through the disobedience of one man." The many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. And so for us, when we think of righteousness, we think of it as something that is given, right? 
we didn't do anything to earn our righteousness. In fact, that's the whole basis of the gospel. There's no works that we have done that have earned our status as righteous because it's something that is given to us, right? He does, Jesus does something, and then we are given righteousness. We are made righteous because of him. Okay? So we think of righteousness as something that is given and kind of like a status that we have before God. For a Jew, though, living before this whole understanding, again, their salvation was also through faith. It wasn't through works. But this word righteousness had very different connotations, and it had more to do uh, with actions. Righteousness was something that you did for a Jew rather than something that was simply given to you. Here's a, here's a great example. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, when David is on the run from Solomon, right? David is anointed to be king, but he has to wait until Solomon, the current king, is gone. And so Solomon doesn't, or Saul, Saul, sorry, Saul doesn't like that. And so Saul starts chasing David and trying to kill him. There's this scene uh, when Saul wanders into a cave to relieve himself, uh, and David happens to be in that cave. And David's friends are like, dude, uh, this is it. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. Now is your time to get rid of this guy so you can be king. Uh, but David doesn't want to do that, so he just sneaks up and he cuts off a little piece of Saul's robe. Uh, but afterwards, he's just like, oh man, what have I done? And so uh, he starts saying to Saul, basically apologizing, like, man, I am so sorry. Uh, you are the Lord's anointed. I shouldn't have done this. See, I'm not trying to kill you. Just stop trying to kill me. I'm, I'm your friend. I'm on your side. And Saul has this like emotional response where he like realizes what he has been doing is wrong. But check out what he says. He says to, to David, you are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. So here's a great example of what this word righteousness, the connotations that it would have uh, to a Jewish person. Righteousness was something that you did. David was righteous because he acted in accordance with the way of God. And so when we read that Joseph was a righteous man, uh, probably a, a good way to think of this is he was somebody who was dedicated to knowing and living the law of the Lord. That's why in the most recent update for the NIV, the one that we have here, um, when it says that Joseph was a righteous man, it actually changes it to Joseph because Joseph kept the law. Because that's a better translation to understanding what it means for us to say that Joseph was a righteous man. He was a man who knew the law, and he was a man who was dedicated to keeping the law. Now, we've got to hold on to that thought. That's going to come back into play uh, in a few minutes here. But that's really important. And again, it's one of the few things uh, that we actually know about Joseph. So we kind of have a little bit of a background, of a, a little bit of a sketch of who this guy is. Now, let's actually get into the text uh, and read this story uh, of Joseph. It's in Matthew chapter 1. So this is on page 675 if you're using one of these guys. Matthew chapter 1. Um, this is a, a familiar story, right? <laughs> Many of us know this Christmas story. Many of us know the details. Many of us know the end of the story. Spoiler alert. Um, but we need to, I think, I think it's helpful when we read stuff like this to try really hard to detach ourselves. Try really hard to just read it as if we're hearing this for the first time to see what the author, what Matthew, being inspired by God as he writes, uh, is, is trying to communicate to us. And so let's, let's start in verse 18. It says, uh, 
this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus Christ, came about. His mother Mary was, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. All right, let's stop right there, because uh, this is really important, again, for us to, to, to get the nuances of this story, uh, to kind of step back, because we all know what's going on here, right? We all know the end. We all know that this baby that Mary is found to be pregnant with is not just any baby, right? But this is incarnate God. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is Jesus. We understand that when this baby is born, it's going to radically shift uh, the direction and the trajectory of human history. Uh, We know that when this baby is born, eventually Mary and Joseph who otherwise would essentially just kind of drift off into obscurity. We'd never know who these people were. Uh, But because of who their son is, they are going to be remembered and there's going to be wooden figurines and Legos made out of them 2,000 years later, right? We know where this is going and we know how significant and how important this story is and we know that this isn't just any baby. We know that there's something divine and spiritual and other going on here. But for Joseph... At this point, all he knows is that his girlfriend's pregnant, and he is not the father. So, Mori Povich, call your office, right? Perhaps Mary at this point has tried to explain what's going on when we try to harmonize what's going on here and what's going on in the Gospel of Luke. But what Matthew wants to tell us is that Joseph doesn't know that there's anything else going on here besides the fact that his girlfriend is pregnant and he's not responsible for it. So, what in the world is Joseph supposed to think here? He can put two and two together. He realizes what's going on. Any sort of relationship, whether it's a marriage or an engagement. And for the Jewish people in the first century, an engagement and a marriage were very similar. Uh, there's not this long distinction between the two, the two of these things. Uh, but for any relationship, it's this delicate balance, right, of uh, commitment and trust and attraction uh, and faith and right, all of these things kind of pull together to make a relationship, whether it's romantic or otherwise, And when one of these elements, trust, faithfulness, uh, any of these things start to kind of unravel, the whole thing starts to fall apart. And for Joseph here, this isn't just, oh, my girlfriend's pregnant. I wonder what the score of the football game is, right? For Joseph, you've got to imagine what's going on here. His whole world is just snapping apart. If anybody's been in a relationship, whether it's romantic or otherwise, uh, in which you have uh, been on the opposite side of somebody breaking some of the bonds or the trust of that relationship, you know exactly what Joseph is feeling. You know how his world is just caving in on him right now. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what's going on. All he knows is that his girlfriend is pregnant and he's not the father. (laughs) So all the trust, all the commitment, uh, all this feeling like, oh, she desires me, (laughs) is suddenly out the window and Joseph's world is spinning out of control. 
This is what he knows at this point. Perhaps Mary tried to say, Joseph, uh, I'm pregnant. You're not the father, but don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, there's, I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah. Uh, to which Joseph replies, <laughs> yeah, of course you are, Mary. Um, so put yourselves where Joseph is at this moment, according to what Matthew wants to tell us. Broken. Falling apart. <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on here. All he knows is that his girlfriend's pregnant and he is not the father. All right, let's keep going. Verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, or righteous, there's that word, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. All right, we're going to come back to this verse uh, in just a second. But let's keep going. But... After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So when the angel comes and explains everything that's going on, maybe it finally clicks that what Mary was saying is true, or maybe he's hearing this for the first time. But either way, once the angel comes, the whole thing changes. Suddenly he realizes that Mary hasn't been unfaithful. Suddenly he realizes that there's something much, much, much more important going on here. But, how does verse 20 start? Before the angel gets there, before the angel says anything, before the angel explains anything to him, he's already made this decision, and he says, but after he had considered this. Now this word, considered, is really important for us to, to get a full picture of what's going on here with Joseph. And so uh, there's a guy named Kenneth Bailey who wrote this book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, where he uh, approaches this gospel as somebody who's lived in the Middle East for like over 60 years or something like this. He presents this idea uh, that this word, consider, is actually something much more. So this is the Greek word here, uh, enthomeomai, enthomeomai, let's all say it together, perfect Greek accents. All right, nice. <laughs> About as good as mine. Uh, so enthomeomai uh, is a word that very, very clearly can be translated as considered or to think about, but perhaps there's something else going on here. So this word in the form that it's used here in Matthew 1 is used only, other one, only one other place in the entire New Testament. That's also used by Matthew, and it's in Matthew chapter 9. And so in Matthew 9... Uh, Jesus, uh, this man is brought to Jesus. They want Jesus to heal him. And Jesus, instead of healing him, says, your sins are forgiven, right? He forgives sins, which is something that only God can do, right? And so Jesus does this, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, uh, look at him, and they are disgusted by the fact that this man is claiming to do something that only God can do. Again, we know the story. We know that he is the second person in the Trinity, they just think he's some Galilean hick who's going around claiming to have the powers of God. And so they are absolutely uh, horrified at this. And so uh, Jesus says this, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Here's our word, the only other time it's used in this exact same form. And in this case, it's connected to the term evil. (laughs) 
is not just thinking, but it has this kind of negative connotation to it. Second time, uh, the root of this word is used uh, is actually just after uh, our story in the book of Matthew. So the root here, uh, themo, uh, is used in the story of Herod. So if you're familiar with the story, um, these magi have come from the east because they're astronomers and they see a star that indicates that there's a new king in Jerusalem. And so they come uh, to Herod, who is the current king, this Roman-appointed king of the Jews. And he says, hey, we're looking for this guy. Herod doesn't like the idea that there's going to be somebody to take his job. So he says to the magi, why don't you find him and then let me know so I can come worship him. And by worship him, he means he wants to kill him, right? So the Magi go, uh, they find Jesus, right? They bring him the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, but then they decide not to go back uh, to Herod. And then when Herod finds out, it says this, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, right? So this is the familiar story here of the massacre But that word, (laughs) furious, is the root word (laughs) of the word that Matthew used to say that Joseph considered these things. And so we have two occurrences here. One of the exact same uh, combination of words. One of the root of that word. And both of these uh, are words that are deep (laughs) with emotion and anger and fury. And it totally makes sense that this is how Joseph is feeling, right? We think of Joseph as just kind of this stoic guy, like, oh, you're pregnant. Okay, let's see what we can do. Let's divorce quietly so we can move on with our life. But that's not really how anybody responds. It doesn't matter how righteous you are. Nobody acts that way. And so it makes a lot of sense For us to understand here that Joseph isn't just calmly, stoically considering this, but that Joseph is mad, he's hurt, he's upset, he's broken. This is emotional actions here. This is not just thinking, plain face, but this is is raw. And it makes sense that this is who Joseph is. So, when we take that understanding, if that's correct, which I think it is, we read it back into the actions that Joseph did, suddenly they take on a whole other dimension, right? Because when we go back up to verse 19, and it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce, divorce her quietly, even though he was hurt and broken and felt wronged and upset about it. Now, we know that Joseph was a righteous man and faithful to the law. That meant that Joseph would be very familiar uh, with what the law said about uh, infidelity in an engagement or a marriage. And so we're not going to go to it. It gets uh, into pretty extensive detail in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22 and chapter 23. You can read it sometime. Um, But it gets into pretty deep detail about what is allowed, what the law provides for, if somebody, uh, specifically if a woman, claims that she has never been with a man, 
uh, is in the process of getting married, and then in that process is found out that, yes, in fact, she has been with a man. She's been lying or she's been unfaithful. If this were to happen, or if there was unfaithfulness within a marriage, like if somebody was caught in adultery, the law <laughs> didn't speak well about what could happen uh, to that young girl or to the man that she was caught with. Uh, essentially, uh, what would happen here is that they would be brought into a very public place. And once they get into that public place, then accusation would be made and said, this woman claims that she has not been with anybody, but I think that she has. I think that she's been unfaithful, right? This is public. This is like in the square. This isn't like in a private courtroom. This is where everybody milling around can hear. And then uh, the elders of the town would investigate. And if they found out that it was true, the law in its, uh, the, the, the letter of the law provided uh, that this woman and the man that she was found to be committing adultery with uh, were to be stoned, were to be publicly executed. Now, in Jesus' day, uh, in the day of Joseph, this was probably not held to the letter of the law. However, when you read John chapter 8, we see a woman caught in adultery, let out into the middle of the city, and the people are going to stone her. But for the most part, this probably wouldn't be kept in that way. There probably wouldn't be a public execution, but what there would be would be a public shaming of this woman. And in a culture that was heavily dependent on shame, right, if you were shamed for something that you did, uh, that would completely change your life and the perspective life that you may have. If you were a woman uh, who was engaged to somebody and then publicly (laughs) declared to be unfaithful to your husband you could pretty much kiss uh, the good life goodbye because you are not getting married again. You're not finding any good job again. You're pretty much moving to the outskirts of society. Perhaps you can get a job working for the Romans or worse, perhaps you find a job in prostitution or something like that. But essentially, your life is over. For a man, if, if you were the engaged one who was cheated on, things weren't a lot better for you either because suddenly everybody in the whole town knows that your fiancé didn't find you to be enough and needed to cheat. Right? That's the perception, at least. And so now you have this baggage that you're carrying around on top of things. And so your life has been radically changed by these actions. Okay? This is the process. It's this public declaration which would then lead to implications in both of the lives of these people. Joseph was a righteous man. Joseph was faithful to the law. Joseph knew very well what was going on here. And he knew that probably the best way for him to handle this situation, at least from his perspective, would be to, before anything could happen, publicly declare, look, I didn't do anything here. Uh, I have been faithful. I have been righteous. But this woman, she is the one who committed this sin. This woman is the one who was unfaithful. I have been righteous. I have been faithful. Right? Joseph knows that probably the best situation for him is to nip this thing in the bud, to cut it off at the pass and make this declaration publicly. Hey, this is not me. This is all her. I'm still good. That would be the best thing for Joseph, uh, but also, 
how good would that feel, <laughs> right? Here's Joseph, and all he knows is his wife is pregnant, and he's not the father. And there's not only this, this personal hurt and personal pain, but there's kind of a bit of humiliation here, right? How awesome would it feel <laughs> to be able to stand up in the public square and shame this woman who just brought shame upon you? Come on. <laughs> we all know that if we are in that situation, this thought would cross our minds. We would want everybody to know so she can feel what I'm feeling right now, right? So she can get it too. So I'm not the only one here looking foolish, but she can look foolish too. How awesome would that feel? <laughs> and Joseph, as a righteous man, knew that the law provided him the opportunity to do just that. He could stand up, he could clear his name, and he could shame, publicly humiliate this woman who humiliated him first. And he's angry, and he's upset, and he's furious, and he's hurt, and he's emotional. This seems like the exact thing that he should do, that I would want to do, that many of us would want to do. But of course, we know that that's not what Joseph did, right? The new NIV here, again, translates this beautifully when it says, uh, because her husband Joseph was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph's faithfulness to the law said, I know I can do this, Yet his desire to protect this girl, knowing what would happen to her if this were to come out and if he were to publicly declare in front of the town that she was unfaithful, he knew what would happen to her and he didn't want that. And so what Joseph does here, and this is really important for us to understand this guy, is in this raw, emotional, vulnerable state in which many of us would choose to do whatever we could to look out for us. Joseph chooses, despite his anger and his hurt, to do something that benefits someone even more vulnerable than him. In his desire to be faithful to the law, Joseph, in this humble action looks to the needs of this girl who he knew would be lost forever. Her life would be over. Yet his character says, his faithfulness to the law says, she right now is more important than me. Her future is more important than my desire to get even. And so, this brilliant, beautiful, unfathomable act of humility. Before he knows what's going on here, before he knows that this baby is not just a baby, Joseph says, I'm going to choose you and your future and your feelings and where you are in life over myself. Of course, the story of Joseph 
is not the reason that we celebrate Christmas, right? We're not going to all gather around and, and think about that wonderful act of Joseph, right? He's just going to be forgotten. He's going to go back to being that weird, grumpy face in the back of the nativity scene. Because the story of Joseph is not the story of Christmas, but the story of Joseph points to the story of Christmas. It points to an even greater movement and act of humility, right? When God himself enters into the world of humanity in order to bring us back to him. We're going to talk more about that tonight as we look uh, towards this idea of incarnation. But the story of Joseph is simply a pointer moving towards Jesus. And so Paul, uh, in the book of Philippians, says this really famous line, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, such as publicly disgracing this girl who cheated on you. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The story of the Advent is a story that is soaked in humility. From the setting, right? This very normal Jewish setting and where uh, they can't find a room in the family's guest room and so they need to uh, give birth to the baby in the place or at least lay the baby in the place where the animals would would normally be. Uh, To the, the fact that then when they go to dedicate Jesus at the temple, they can't give the normal sacrifice because they're too poor, so instead they have to give the sacrifice of two pigeons, right? This whole thing is a story of humility. Then Jesus himself goes and he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners and the people who are on the fringes of society, and he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, then ultimately finds himself hanging on a cross for the purpose of bringing all of humanity back to a place where they could be in connection with God. The story of Christmas, the story of Jesus, the story of Easter is a story of humility. Deep, deep humility. Yet before any of that happens, we see in this guy Joseph uh, what this looks like in the real world. Right? You and I are not going to die for the sins of all of humanity. (laughs) But you and I can still have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Joseph's actions really weren't doing anything for anybody besides himself in Mary, yet he chose to do them because he understood that this is the way of God. When we live in humility, when we step into actions of humility, whether they're small Tiny actions that nobody is going to hear about. (laughs) It's giving the bigger piece of cake to your wife instead of yourself. Not that that ever happens in my life. Whether it's a little thing that we don't hear about, whether it's big, (laughs) whenever we step into humility, whenever we choose humility and others over self, we, in a very powerful, tangible way, are stepping into the story of Christmas. This year, 
as we continue with this Advent season, as you move into this final week, crunch time leading up uh, to our celebrations of Christmas, there will be opportunities for you to choose others over self. When you do so, you are telling the story of Christmas in a small way. In a way that looks like giving the other guy the bigger piece of cake. (laughs) In a way that looks like raising someone up over yourself because that is what Christmas is. It's about humility. The story of Joseph points to that, but it gets so much bigger. And so, may we follow his example. Joseph is a man who's following the example of a son that's not even born yet. (laughs) Yet how brilliantly does this show us the mindset of Christ? May we be people who in humility think of others over ourselves. Because when we do so, we are stepping into and reenacting the story of Christmas. Let's pray. God, it is our desire to be faithful men and women, to be righteous in the way that Joseph was righteous. We thank you that when we put our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of our son, we are made righteous, not by anything we have done. Yet, God, we can also be people who strive to know and to follow your ways, to be people who live out uh, the life that you have created us to live. And sometimes that looks as simple uh, as thinking of the other person before ourselves. God, we thank you for the example of Joseph. We thank you for the example uh, that he was as a human father to your son. And we pray that we don't just relegate him to the back of the nativity set, but we remember that this was a man who reflected your ideals and did so in a way uh, that we can follow. God, we don't do this to worship any man, but we do this because you have created us for humility, and we want to live that out. So help us to find a small way this week, this day, this afternoon, where we can choose humility, and by doing so, tell the story of Christmas. We thank you for this story. We thank you for your coming and your entering into this world. We thank you that your son stepped down and didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead entered into our world to bring us back to you. Help us to continue to reflect on that throughout this season as we celebrate the love and the joy and the peace and the world-changing actions of the Advent. We pray all of these things in your humble and beautiful name. Amen. Grace be with you.